Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 12, Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10. Let's get started here. <clears throat> We're going to continue today in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And allow me to remind you, please, that Deuteronomy is essentially a sermon by Moses. And so I have been and will continue to present Deuteronomy to you in a similar form, a sermon. Um, and it's a reality, you know, of the human condition that as time passes, history gets rewritten. It gets reinterpreted. Sometimes it gets lost altogether. And it really doesn't take a particularly long period of time for that to happen. A decade is often more than enough for history to kind of become distorted or discarded. The U.S. Constitution is a case in point. And I use this as an illustration because it demonstrates perhaps the primary reason that Moses is spending a pretty significant amount of time in revisiting Israel's history and her covenant relationship with Yehoveh. You know, our Supreme Court, whose job it is, at least in theory, to interpret and apply the Constitution to our justice system that must operate in an ever-evolving society consists of men and women who can sort of be divided into two distinct philosophies. The first philosophy is those who believe that the Constitution is a living document that is meant to change with the times, and therefore it's the purpose of the court to reinterpret and even adjust that Constitution relative to evolving societal needs as they see it. Alternatively, there's those justices who see the Constitution as written in stone and think its purpose is to but ascertain what was in the minds of the Constitution's creators and to faithfully apply that to whatever question at hand versus applying their own thoughts to it. That is, they ought to seek out the creator's intent and apply that to every case that's brought before them. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses is revisiting the law and the history of Israel so that the succeeding generation, these that were before him, the children of the first generation of the Exodus, get more in-depth instruction concerning God's mind and his purposes for the law and so that neither the law's meaning nor the events that constructed and defined Israel could be misinterpreted. Now note that it's been less than 40 years since that law was first given and further notice that Moses was not giving Israel a new or evolving law. He was simply expounding on the existing law and how its underlying principles would operate once Israel left behind those Bedouin tents and began living a more settled life in Canaan. Now hidden deep within the books of the Psalms and the Prophets, we'll find that same thing. They're constantly reminding Israel of her history. 
her relationship with God. And despite the ebbs and the flows and the ups and the downs and this, and the constantly progressing technologies, just what it is that the Lord continues to expect of His set-apart people. Well, when we get to the New Testament, we're going to find Yeshua doing what Moses is doing as the Messiah revisits the law and God's principles in light of the reality of the era and its circumstances. Christ is reminding his followers that not the tiniest feature of the law or the divine substance upon which it rests has changed or, heaven forbid, been abolished. I've already drawn in an earlier lesson the direct pattern and parallel between Moses' Sermon on the Mount, which we're currently studying here in Deuteronomy, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that would occur 1,300 years later. By Yeshua's day, as anyone listening to me right now should understand, an enormous amount of time had passed since Abraham's day. And Hebrew society looked nothing like it did even during the Exodus. Okay, But predictably, since the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, there were many attempts by various Hebrew sages and religious authorities to rewrite and reinterpret the law and to remold it to their own satisfaction. Okay. Jewish religious leaders determined that they had the authority and, of course, the elite intelligence to adjust the meaning behind the law and even to skew the foundational God principles of Torah to reflect their current personal agendas. And much of the Jewish society had accepted these relatively new ways of thinking, some of which I ran, some of which ran completely counter to the Creator's intent, because Israel's history had been rewritten a number of times, at least outside of the Holy Scriptures. Now, they had in their possession the ancient records of their history and of the actual word of God as originally given, that Tanakh, the Old Testament. But they preferred instead to go by the rulings of the intellectuals of their day, called sages and rabbis, and these rulings were eventually collected into a work of prescribed traditions called the Talmud. Now, few Americans, at least Americans under the age of about 50, have ever read that rather short document that is the foundation of our entire society, the Constitution. When I was in elementary school a really long time ago, <laughs> reading the Constitution and even taking an exam on it was mandatory. Over time, the Constitution has been relegated to something that is unintelligible and nearing obsolescence. And so we prefer instead to let our elected representatives and often unelected men called judges to decide and tell us what that document says and what it means. That is generally the way it was and remains with the Jewish people regarding the Torah and the Law of Moses. They much prefer to read the recordings of tradition 
and faithfully practice the rulings of sages and rabbis than to refer directly to God's word and be obedient to that. Not surprisingly, Christianity has pretty much followed that same track. And we much prefer the doctrines laid down by our denominations founders than what the Bible actually says, because although we may be redeemed, we're still all too human. So as we continue today in Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're going to find Moses reminding the people of things that happened only a handful of years earlier. Not just because this was a new generation that needed to hear it, but because, as we're going to quickly see, these wandering Israelites had already begun to rewrite history and adopt some pretty strange ideas about what their relationship with Yehovah was. And we'll see why this distortion occurred in the first place. So, let's reread from Deuteronomy 9, 6 to the end of the chapter. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're going to start reading at verse 6. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 207. Going to do a lot of reading tonight, so keep your Bible right next to you. Starting at verse 6. Therefore, understand that it is not for your righteousness that Adonai, your God, is giving you this good land to possess. For you're a stiff-necked people. Remember, don't forget how you made Adonai, your God, angry in the desert. From the day you left the land of Egypt till you arrived at this place, you've been rebelling against Adonai. Also in Horeb, you made God angry. Adonai was angry enough with you to destroy you. I had gone up the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets on which was written the covenant Adonai had made with you. I stayed on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights without eating food or drinking water. Then Adonai gave me those two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, and on them was written every word Adonai had said to you from the fire on the mountain the day of the assembly. Yes, after 40 days and nights, Adonai gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, and He said to me, get up, hurry down from here because your people whom you let out of Egypt have become corrupt. So quickly have they turned aside from the way I ordered them to follow. They made themselves a metal image. Moreover, Adonai said to me, I have seen this people and what a stiff-necked people they are. Let me alone so I can put an end to them and blot out their name from under heaven. I'll make out of you a nation bigger and stronger than they. I came down from the mountain. The mountain was blazing fire, and the two stone tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And I looked, and there you had sinned against Adonai, your God. You made for yourselves a metal calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way Adonai had ordered you to follow. I seized the two tablets, threw them out of my two hands, and broke them before your eyes. Then I fell down before Adonai, as I had the first time for 40 days and nights, during which time I neither ate food or drank water, all because of the sin you committed by doing what was evil in the sight of Adonai and thus provoking him. I was terrified that because of how angry Adonai was at you, of how heatedly displeased he was, that he'd destroy you. But Adonai listened to me that time too. In addition, Adonai was very angry with Aaron, and would have destroyed him. But I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. I took your sin, the calf you had made, 
and burned it up in the fire, beat it to pieces, ground it up still smaller until it was as fine as dust. Then I threw its dust into the stream coming down from the mountain. Again at Tavarah, Masah, and Kivrot, Hatav'ah, you made God angry. And when Adonai sent you off to Kadesh Barnea by saying, go up and take possession of the land I've given you, you rebelled against the order Adonai, your God, order of Adonai, your God. You neither trusted him nor heeded what he said. You have been rebelling against Adonai from the day I first knew you. So I fell down before Adonai for those 40 days and nights, and I lay there because Adonai had said he'd destroy you. I prayed to Adonai and said, Adonai God, don't destroy your people, your inheritance. You redeemed them through your greatness. You brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servants, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Don't focus on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin. Otherwise, the land you brought us out of will say, it was because Adonai wasn't able to bring them into the land that he promised them and because he hated them that he has brought them out here to kill them in the desert. But in fact, they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Moses has just finished explaining to Israel that the only thing that separates them from everybody else is that God chose them. That's it. And that he didn't choose them because they had some kind of inherent righteousness that others didn't, or because they did better works, or they had achieved some higher spiritual plane because of their own merit. Rather, they were but the fortunate recipients of the Creator's special love and attention for the sake of the promise He made centuries earlier to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Beginning in verse 7, Moses now recounts indisputable historical evidence as proof to the people that they had merited nothing, earned nothing, deserved nothing but God's wrath. But instead, they got his greatest mercy and blessing. Moses says that they had barely stepped foot outside of Egypt before they rebelled against the Lord. And then they did it again at Horeb, alternate name for Mount Sinai. And upon arrival at Sinai, Moses was called up by Jehovah to come up to the summit to receive the law. But while he was up there in the midst of cutting a covenant with God and receiving the terms of that covenant, the law, the people were down in the valley breaking those same terms as fast as they could. While Moses was away, the people built a golden calf, a God symbol, an outlawed graven image. This was without doubt the Isis bull, a high Egyptian deity image that was common in their everyday life back in Egypt, something with which they were greatly familiar. Let me use this moment to remind you of something that's quite pertinent to the modern church and at the same time terribly misunderstood. An animal was often used as a symbol of deity in the ancient world. It wasn't, in general, that they thought that some particular animal actually was deity. 
Rather, certain animals were chosen because they were associated with particular attributes that were admired. Uh, Bulls were big and strong and powerful. And so it was the attributes of the god Isis's strength and power that was being symbolized by that bull statue. Rabbits were often used to symbolize fertility, and so quite often the fertility goddess was pictured with rabbit features. Okay, But rabbits were thought to be goddesses. So in the ancient world, most idols and animal symbols were exactly that. Symbols. Representations, not actual gods. And, and, and while this did vary a little bit from culture to culture, it, it's in no way much different than today within some of the Eastern Orthodox churches and in the Catholic Church, whereby statues represent Jesus or Mary or some of the great saints of old, but they don't think, generally speaking, that those statues actually are Jesus and Mary and those saints. So when the Lord ordains in the second commandment not to make a graven image of him, and then goes on to describe all those things that shouldn't be used to do such a thing, it's not so much that folks will think that that graven image is actually him, but that a created thing is being used to define or illustrate or symbolize a divine attribute or a divine characteristic of him. That is the direct danger that we modern Christians must always be cognizant of when we consider creating our religious icons and symbols and then rationalize it all by saying, well, I don't actually worship that symbol. I don't really think it's God. Well, they didn't either. But God called it idolatry. Enough said. Last week I touched on the scene whereby Moses arrives at the bottom of the mountain, sees the people dancing around that golden calf and smashes those stone tablets of the covenant that he'd only just received from Yehovah. Now understand, at that moment, the but days old covenant was undone. The covenant had not merely been violated It was made null and void. That is the standard Middle Eastern meaning of smashing the tablets upon which the terms of the law were written. Let me say that again. The covenant of the law that had just been given to Moses was terminated at that moment. Then Moses goes on to say that as a result of the covenant being canceled, you know what? There's really not much of a reason for Israel to exist anymore. Israel was supposed to be God's earthly agent for carrying out the covenant that would lead to mankind's redemption. Now there was no covenant to be carried out. Therefore, God tells Moses he's going to destroy Israel. He says, you know what? I'll make me a new covenant people out of you. I know something else. Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the high priest, was also going to be destroyed. What use did you have for a high priest of a people who no longer had a covenant with you anymore? 
So even the priestly line wouldn't continue. In Exodus, we didn't see Aaron being singled out for destruction due to his role in the golden calf idolatry, but here in Deuteronomy, we find out he was. Upon that threat, Moses begins to beseech God not to do such a thing, to forgive his people, to restore his people, and God relents. Now here we see, perhaps, the greatest moment of Moses' intercession for Israel in all of Torah. Even greater than being God's instrument of miracles and wrath back in Egypt. For the only thing that saved even the high priest of Israel, let alone Israel itself, was that Moses was Israel's appointed mediator. Only Moses could intercede between God and man. Moses prayed to the Lord and asked him to remember that these people had already been redeemed and that they were marked already to be God's special people. Moses asked Yehovah to remember his promise to the patriarchs, to forgive the wickedness of the people, that it was the Lord himself who did all these great things for his people. Therefore, he'd simply be going back on his holy promise and showing the rest of the world that he was unable to follow through with his plan. Right here, we get the exact pattern that would eventually be demonstrated through Yeshua, our Messiah. The only thing that can save any man is the mediation of a specially appointed man. And this is because the law says that no intentional sin, uh, that to intentionally sin against God is called a high-handed sin, and a high-handed sin has no possibility of atonement. Who could stand between God and man in a dispute? Only a God-appointed mediator. And in all history, God has appointed exactly two. Moses and Jesus. That's it. Yet they are not, of course, on equal footing. Moses was indeed 100% man. But Christ was 100% man and 100% God. Don't ask me to explain that. I just know that it is. Moses did not appeal on the grounds of Israel's righteousness for them to be saved from God's wrath. Rather, he appealed on the grounds of God's righteousness. Yeshua appealed in exactly the same way. I've said it before, and with no apologies, I'll say it again. Your wickedness and mine did not cease upon our redemption any more than Israel's did. Yet that redemption brings with it a special provision before the Lord that the sins resulting from our wickedness can be forgiven. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Only redemption brings with it the ability for these sins to be forgiven. Anyone in days of old outside of the nation of Israel had absolutely no means for their wickedness to be forgiven. None. 
Since the advent of Christ, no one outside of his own followers has any means of their wicked deeds being forgiven. None. But don't become arrogant or complacent because direct sin against God that is termed in the Bible as high-handed sin is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And for that, not even Jesus' blood is sufficient. As much as I love and support and advocate for the Jewish people, there is no means outside of Yeshua for their trespasses to be forgiven. There is not one plan of salvation for the Jews and a separate plan of salvation for everybody else. The plan of salvation was always meant for the Jewish people first. It's just that the Lord provided a way for the foreigner, the Gentile, to be included in that plan. We're going to talk about this a little more in a few minutes. Let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 10. But as we read this chapter, remember this one important thing. The covenant that the Lord had fashioned on the top of Mount Sinai has just been symbolically canceled upon Moses' act of dashing it to pieces, dashing those two stone tablets emblazoned with the Ten Commandments on the ground. Let's move on to chapter 10. We're going to read it all. Deuteronomy chapter 10. At that time, Adonai said to me, Cut yourself two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. I will inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, and you're to put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two stone tablets like the first and then climbed the mountain with the two stone tablets in my hand. And he inscribed the tablets with the same inscription as before, the ten words, which Adonai had proclaimed to you from the fire on the mountain the day of the assembly. And Adonai gave them to me. And I turned and came down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made, and here they remain, as Adonai had ordered me. Now the people of Israel traveled from the wells of Benayachan to Moserah, where Aharon died and was buried, and Eleazar his son took his place, serving in the office of priest. And from there they traveled to Gudgod, from Gudgod to Yotvatah, a region with running streams. And at that time, Adonai set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark for the covenant of Adonai and to stand before Adonai to serve him and to bless his name, as they still do today. This is why Levi has no share or inheritance with his brothers. Adonai is his inheritance, as Adonai your God has said to him. I stayed on the mountain 40 days and nights as previously, and Adonai listened to me that time too. Adonai would not destroy you. Then Adonai said to me, Get up, go on your way as the head of the people, so that they can enter and take possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. So now, Israel, all that Adonai your God asks from you is to fear Adonai your God, to follow his ways, to love him, serve Adonai your God with all your heart and all your being. To obey for your own good the commands and regulations of Adonai which I'm giving you today. See, the sky, the heaven beyond the sky, the earth, everything on it all belonged to Adonai your God. Only Adonai took enough pleasure in your ancestors to love them 
and choose their descendants after them, yourselves, above all peoples, as he still does today. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. For Adonai, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who has no favorites. He accepts no bribes. He secures justice for the orphan and the widow. He loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you're to love the foreigner, since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You're to fear Adonai, your God, serve him, cling to him, swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which you've seen with your own eyes. Your ancestors went down into Egypt with only 70 people. But now Adonai, your God, has made your numbers as many as the stars in the sky. Because the plan of salvation is designed for humans, all the Lord really has to work with is humans to bring it about. Therefore, all throughout human history, we see the Father working out His righteousness through human institutions and human societies. Then it shouldn't come as any surprise that since covenants were created and canceled in certain customary ways in ancient times, so we see those ancient ways used as a form the Lord used to create his covenant with Israel. It is said that if a speaker is unable to get his message across to the audience, then he isn't communicating, he's just talking. The Lord had little choice but to deal with dismally inferior humans except in ways we can understand. Otherwise, we'd have no idea what to make of what he was trying to communicate to us. Now, a man told me not long ago that a certain phrase, matter of fact, that I used last week, saying that God was working out his righteousness, kind of bothered, bothered him. And I explained to him that this really wasn't the Tom Bradford doctrine. Rather, this was pretty standard Christian theological phraseology. It was not to be taken in quite the same way we might think of it if we were speaking of a human working out his righteousness. When a man is said to be working, generally it means that he's actively trying. He's attempting to do something. But it inherently carries with it the idea that what a man is working for may or may not come about in the way he had hoped for, may not even happen at all. That's not what it means when referring to God working out His righteousness. The Lord working out His righteousness means that everything that defines His righteousness, He is using to mold and shape and accomplish His plans, usually by means of his directing human history. When I say, because you 
are a disciple of Jesus, that the Lord is working out his righteousness in you, I mean that since his plan for mankind involves forgiving you of your sins so that he can have an intimate relationship with you, that God introducing himself to you, putting faith to believe in you, and communing with you, that's the process of his working out his righteousness. The idea is that it is not a human righteousness being created out of our natural-born human wickedness. Rather, it is literally God's righteousness from on high overshadowing and overriding our natural sinful natures. Therefore, we can be tools in God's hand as he goes about his work of righteousness, but we can never look to our own righteousness, which none of us have, to help God out. I readily confess that that phrase I used, God working out his righteousness, is inadequate to fully express either what God's righteousness is or how it is that mysteriously he uses men's free wills and inherent evil natures who are usually opposed to him, to actually wind up in the end carrying out his plans. But until I can find better words, these are the only ones I got. So because God communicates with us in dumbed-down ways humans are capable to comprehend, and since the covenant that was just made on Mount Sinai was now canceled, what's to be done? Well, because of Moses' intercession the Lord decided to go ahead and keep Israel as his covenant people. But that meant that the covenant, now terminated, would have to be cut again. The covenant would have to be re-established. What we witness, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 10, is the re-establishment of that covenant. And this action is expressed by the Lord instructing Moses to cut new, two new tablets of stone to replace those broken ones and to bring those blank tablets back up to the top of Mount Sinai in order that the Lord would restore the covenant and all of its terms exactly as it was before. I want you to notice something here. The covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham, then passed down to Isaac and then on to Jacob, that was never in jeopardy. It wasn't that covenant that had any part of the discussion here in Deuteronomy. For one thing, that covenant was just a promise from God. There was no quid pro quo. There was nothing mankind or Israel could do to break that covenant and therefore bring its cancellation. The covenant of Moses created on Mount Sinai, was not created to replace Abraham's covenant. It was created to bring Abraham's covenant about. Okay, recall the Lord saying that he is going to displace the Canaanites in order to establish Israel in Canaan in order to complete his promise, his covenant with Abraham. Now note in verse 1, the Lord says, make me two stone tablets like the first. This is the language showing that the renewed covenant was to be exactly the same 
is the one that was terminated. Now, one of the more standard commentary series on the Bible, and one of, I think, well, the pretty good ones, is the Tinsdale series. And J.A. Thompson, who was a contributor to this comprehensive commentary, had this to say about the termination and then the restoration of the Mount Sinai Covenant, and then compared it to the so-called New Covenant in Christ that we commonly call the New Testament. And since he refers in his comment to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, I want to read that to you before I give you his comments. You don't have to open your Bibles. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34 to you. Here's what it says. It's kind of familiar to most of you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them on their heart. I'll write it. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. Now, J.A. Thompson is a Baptist seminary professor in Melbourne, Australia. And here is his comment about this. He says, even in the great day of renewal envisaged by Jeremiah, it is the same law that is to be written on the heart. The eternal law of God. The sense in which the law would be new in that day would be that it would be differently administered. It would have a different mediator, but it would be fundamentally the same covenant. So even the conservative, evangelical, Tyndale commentator readily sees that any thought that the old law, the Old Testament, being done away with and something entirely new, meaning by definition different, being created just doesn't hold water scripturally, either in the Old Testament or the New. Notice, by the way, in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, the Lord says, I will put what within them? My law I will put within them. What law? The only law there ever is or ever will be. How can God put into a man something that no longer exists? How can the law be dead and gone, but God is going to put that dead and gone thing inside of you? Are we who claim that God never changes going to continue to maintain that he did change? But this particular change doesn't count as changing. That he created one law, then he wadded it up and threw it away and created a whole new one substantially different from the first. A new law that says there's no further need for obedience. What meaning is there in a law, Bible's word, not mine, 
What meaning is there in a law if there's no requirement to follow it? You can't even call it a law. Did the Lord create a new law that says, I want you to have your fire insurance in the form of belief in Jesus and then you can just go your merry way and I expect nothing more of you? Doesn't even sound right, does it? Do you recall that I showed you in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 that the original law of Mount Sinai was also specifically written on the heart? So to say that the way the law is different is that the old was not written on the heart, but the new one was, even that's scripturally unsound. Are we therefore to respond only to what God might decide to show us in our hearts as individuals, essentially each of us having our own custom personal set of laws, what is right and wrong? Again, that is not scriptural. You've read it yourself. You see, that's just a philosophy that men have conjured up because we prefer it. We can just march to our own drum any time we want to. Also notice a rather critical point. Who is this new covenant going to be made by in between? What did you just read? Between God and who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. I don't think it said anything about foreigners or Gentiles. We'll come back to that. In any case, verses 3 through 5, chapter 10, has Moses saying that he obeyed God's instructions to him, making the Ark of the Covenant as he was told, and that he placed those new tablets, the second set, inside of it. Then in verse 6, we have Israel leaving Mount Sinai and moving on using place names not mentioned before in the Torah. Beirot, Bene, Yachan, and Mosrah. And it says that Aaron died at Mosrah, and Eleazar, his son, took over the post of high priest there. Now notice something that attentive Bible scholars have always seen. Verses 6 through 9 weren't written by Moses. These verses were inserted after Moses was dead. And when exactly, we're not sure. Everything for quite some time has been spoken of in the first person that we've been reading. I, me. Suddenly at verse 6, the narrative switches to the third person. They, meaning the Israelites. And then just as abruptly at verse 10, it comes right back to Moses speaking in the first person again. You know, it's always been known that not all of the Torah was written by Moses, even though it's sometimes referred to as the Law of Moses, or the five books of Moses, or it's been said in a general way that Moses wrote the Torah. We will have several places where Moses obviously couldn't have written it because it discusses his death and what happened afterwards. And, and here in this particular passage, we have something where some editor thought that an exp explanation of just why the Levites had received no land inheritance, it had to be inserted and discussed. This isn't a problem in any way. It precisely agrees with what we read in both Exodus and Numbers. Now, by way of quick review, though, because the subject of the Levites and land inheritance is 
an important issue that shapes the rest of the Bible right on through Revelation. See, just as God separated Israel from the rest of the world to make them a separate people for him, he also separated out the tribe of Levi from the rest of Israel to be a separate priesthood for him. And in both cases, the election of Israel and then the tribe of Levi to be set apart was accomplished by means of a declaration by God. And had absolutely nothing to do with merit or some unique higher level of righteousness. Even though the Hebrews were set apart, they didn't stop being human beings that lived on planet Earth and shared it with everybody else, but they were given a different purpose and a different status and even a set-apart land. So even though the Levites were set apart from Israel, they didn't stop being Hebrews, but they were given a different purpose and a different status from the other 12 tribes. Now, as believers in Yeshua, we haven't stopped being human, nor are we to stop living in the world. But we do have a different purpose and a different status than those who do not believe. And this special purpose and status is accomplished not because of our inherent righteousness, but by means of a declaration of the Lord and nothing else. And as a result of this special status given to the Levites to be attendants to Yehovah, they were not permitted to share in the land inheritance the rest of Israel received. Instead, this special status in itself was their inheritance. And contained within these inserted verses, 6 through 9, we get a very important piece of information. It is that the Levites have three principal functions there to perform. First, they're to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Second, they're to stand before the Lord in attendance to Him. And third, they're to bless His holy name. The Levites were the only ones who could carry the Ark. Anybody else that would try it would be killed. Even the Levites, though, were only permitted to touch the carrying poles, slid through the rings, molded into that Ark for that purpose. To stand before the Lord is a Hebrew idiom. And it means to serve in an official capacity. And to bless his holy name means that the Levite priests are the only ones who would be permitted to perform those sacrificial rituals to Yehovah. Now from this point forward, starting with verse 12, Moses makes a call for the commitment of the people of Israel to obey all that God has demanded. Because verse 12 begins with that rhetorical question, And now, O Israel, what does Jehovah your Elohim demand of you? Short question. Big implications. Because the people are about to be asked for a personal decision on this issue. The enormity of the decision was this. To agree would be to apprehend all the blessings laid out in the Torah. To decline would mean to experience all the curses laid out in the Torah. 
Here is one of the forgotten principles found in the Bible. Here we have stated in direct language the requirement not on how to become redeemed, but rather how to live the redeemed life in harmony with the Redeemer after we've been redeemed. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Do you want to live in harmony and peace with God during the duration of your life? Or do you only want to be assured of salvation and nothing more? If you only want to be sure of salvation, this verse is definitely not for you. If you're interested in knowing what the Lord expects of you as a saved person, then please pay attention. Moses says, as a reply to what it is that the Lord demands of his people, it is to revere him, to walk in his paths, to love him, to serve him, and to keep or obey the Lord's commandments and laws. Folks, this sure isn't for people who aren't his. This isn't for pagans. The Lord has placed no demand upon non-believers to revere Him or obey Him. None. But for those who do rely on Yeshua, He has five basic demands for all of us. Let me say them again. Revere, walk, love, serve, obey. Revere, walk, love, serve, obey. I'm going to get in trouble with some of you for this. But notice that love isn't the only demand. Interestingly, even though earlier in Deuteronomy and later in the New Testament we'll be told that the Torah can be summed up by Love Jehovah your God with all of your mind, soul, and strength. In other verses, we are repeatedly told what God's definition of loving Him means. And this is where we get in trouble. We insist on deciding for ourselves how to love Him. And first and foremost, the Lord says that the expression of love towards Him that He seeks, that He demands from each and every one of us is obedience to his commandments. Yet, in another vein, these five demands that he places on us to revere, to walk, to love, to serve, and to obey are all interrelated. They're kind of interwoven. It's not a deal where we can pick the best three out of five. Kind of forget the rest. The man who loves God will revere him. The man who loves God will walk in his ways. The man who loves God will serve him and keep his commandments. The man who keeps his commandments loves God, reveres God, walks in his way, serves him, and so on. All of these attitudes are organically interdependent. The underlying principle here is so very clear. Our worship of God the way we live our lives, it can't be separated and compartmentalized. 
Although it sure seems like we try and we try, don't we? We'll finish chapter 10 and get into chapter 11 the next time we meet.